Welcome to Unboard, Unplugged, Unscripted Board Leadership, a conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. With me today is somebody that I have spent some time with on a board, uh, Chris Winter, in South Africa. South Africa is, is going to be part of the future of the world as we move from 7 billion people, whatever, to about 9 or 10 billion most of that extra population on the planet is going to be located in Africa. And, and my experience in being involved with Chris and being in Africa, it's a different place for most people in North America or Europe. It's a big blob that's sort of mostly south of the equator, and we really don't understand it, but it's a very complex and fascinating part of the world. So, so thank you, Chris, for joining me and having a conversation. And just to kick it off, tell me and the people that uh, would be listening to this a little bit about yourself, where you've come from in your life. Yeah, thanks, uh, Brian. So for me, um, you know, I've been in South Africa, obviously, my life, my career, um, I spent about um, 14 years in merchant banking in two South African banks, well-known standards and APSA. Um, and primarily in those 14 years, focusing on food commodities and the financing of those food commodities. So uh, merchant banking, you know, we looked a lot at uh, trade finance, structured trade and commodity finance. So, so the benefit for me in, in that is I learned a lot about finance. I learned a lot about, um, you know, international finance. I spent close to, close to three years in New York um, uh, financing flows of food commodities between South America and um, and Asia, um, and then I joined when I, on my return I joined an agricultural company, agricultural food company, and I I spent about three years uh, managing the financial services business, and then I became the the group CEO for eleven years. So I did leave them beginning of 2020 to start my own uh, investment company, looking at food and agriculture across Africa. Um, with a specific passion for food security. And as you refer to the growth in population, um, you know, for me, that is uh, partly my, my mission and my vision, you know, is to, to try and make a bit of a difference for generations to come in future and in, in terms of the investment that I'm doing. So that's the exciting part, but that's in short my career. Over so the you, last, uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that you were in New York for three years. You know, I forgot that. And, and was there ever a time when you were tempted to stay in the Big Apple? There must have been opportunities for you, even for your family to say, you know, we're, we're, we're in the center of the universe. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it, um, it, it was a huge opportunity for us as a family, you know. Um, and we came into New York in August 2002. So, um, you know, close on a year after 9-11. So, which was uh, an interesting period to to get into New York uh, with uh, everything happening and all the changes, but also staying here, I learned so much and it was such a big blessing, but I did have an offer to stay there. Um, It was a big decision for my family and myself to come back, but ultimately we felt that our, you know, our, let's call it purpose is in Africa, you know, to make a difference. And and that's probably the biggest reason why we came back to South Africa. That was an interesting one. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you, you got to know Africa. So, you, you know, you have a special place in your heart for Africa. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've taken away from, from our experience, from my experience, Chris, 
is is I found uh, that speaking for myself, but I think it's 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 not uncommon. People have the, you know they look if you grow up in North America or Europe, you see this big landmass called Africa, and you think of jungles and gorillas, and and then there's a dry part down in the south. Africa is so much more complex. It's it's like saying Europe and 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 sort of mixing up the French and the Germans and the Russians. If you had to sort of say what's the biggest misconception people have of Africa and the African continent, how would you describe that? I think, as you were saying, a lot of people refer to Africa almost as a country, um, you know, and people forget it's 54 different countries, um, you know, different legal uh, processes, um, you know. So, so I think that's probably one of them. Um, I think the second one is people forget the um, importance of relationships in Africa. Africa is very much driven by relationships, not necessarily by spreadsheets, you know, um, and sometimes that's more important than the spreadsheet. So, so it's, an, it's an interesting place, but I think that's probably two of the big uh, misconceptions for me. Um, and, and yeah, ultimately, um, it is a continent with uh, a huge amount of growth. Um, and I think that is probably the third misconception is that there's a huge amount of development uh, that happened that's happening and happened in Africa over the, over many many decades. You know, so so in certain instances we're not that far behind. In certain instances we are far behind. You know, speaking just to go through on onto your point about relationships. One of the other one takeaways that I it struck me and it's strange being a Canadian understanding this, but is is the language challenges that exist and 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 the fact that in south africa people speak english or afrikaans but in a lot of parts of of what you would call africa because there's south africa or southern africa and then africa french is french is a, a big issue yeah. is can can you talk about challenge of language and building the relationships because or, or do most people speak english that you're you're building those relationships with yeah, so in, in South Africa, as you're aware, we have 11 official languages. So, um, you know, you have uh, Afrikaans English, and then you have Kosa and Tswane, you know, and Zulu. So this, there are so many different languages in South Africa. But in, in Africa, as you look back in, from a colonialism point of view, you know, we have the Portuguese-speaking countries and the French-speaking countries, and then obviously Eastern Africa is a lot of uh, English-speaking countries and, and Central Africa. So, so it is difficult, um, but I think that over time with um, with relationships, I don't. Everybody speaks English, so everybody uses English as a business language, um, and you start to build those relationships, um, you know, in English. And I think the the one thing is it it also comes over years of of working together, you know. So a lot of my relationship across different cultures comes over many, many years of just interacting with people. You know, a lot of my banking friends still, you know, we still speak to today and, and those relationships are still are still there. And and I and I suppose, you know, I, I should ask you that question because you in in the experience that you had on the board, you obviously experienced some of those different languages or people with different cultures. Um, but you end up building relationships with those. Um, you know, and, and you didn't necessarily experience it difficult, did you? I think the interesting thing about it is not the language necessarily, but when you're on a board, because uh, if you're, is, is the way that people think. 
And, and I look at in our own country in Canada, uh, I see sometimes people in, in what's called uh, English Canada have, having a different way of thinking. And I, 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 I liked your reference to, to spreadsheet thinking because I think that there's maybe, maybe it's an Anglo-Saxon culture uh, element that to think in numerical, logical ways, uh, I find that the, the Quebecois, uh, even in media, the difference, you know, the, in English media, reporters report the facts. And, yeah. and, and in, in French media, the reporter is actually expected to contribute how they feel yeah. about what's happening. So I don't yeah. know, is, is that something that you see happening even at board levels in, in, in the people that you deal with in Africa? Yeah, absolutely. So, so maybe just to, to to carry on a little bit on that point. I mean, when I was in in New York, I I was fortunate to manage a team of professionals in structured trade, commodity finance that um, you know came from five different countries. You know, um, and and I think in a sense I learned a lot about the multicultural teams at that point in time. So coming back to South Africa. And sitting on a board where you have five or six different cultures, is uh, you know it, it became part of your systems. Even even in my executive team, I used to to relish, you know, enjoy the opportunity to have more cultures involved because you get completely different perceptions into into one uh, point of debate or discussion. So it, it sometimes it, it can be annoying. <laughs> one needs to manage the process and manage the the expectations. Um, but definitely, I think um, it is something to understand, you know, the multicultural um, uh, people on sitting on boards to understand where they're coming from and their perceptions and the contribution that they can make in, in those areas. Yeah, I, I, I found that the cadence, the, the pace of a board meeting is very different. I think yeah. in, in, uh, in, for lack of a better way to put it, in, in the West, we race for the finish line. We, we're very yeah. task oriented. We tick the boxes and, and make the decisions and have movers and seconders. And, and there's, there's much more. And I think it speaks back to your, your, what your comment was about relationships. There's much more of a conversation that happens in a different way of arriving at what is the right uh, decision. But, yeah. And tell me, Brian, I mean, if you look back to the boards that you, we're on in, in, in Canada. How do you experience, uh, you know, things like, you know, corporate governance processes? This is very similar, but as you say, maybe just short and sweet compared to, to Africa. Certainly shorter, uh, probably less formality. Uh, it, it, or Sorry, there's greater formality, I would say, from what I saw in South Africa um, in particular. Uh, it's... I think that the the issue with corporate governance in in Canada or in the United States and and I and parts of Europe from what I've experienced is is um, it's it's much more task driven. Um, the, there's a there's a misunderstanding what the role of the chair is, uh, and and the chair to me is is somebody who is more of a facilitator as opposed to being uh, of the CEO. And I think in the U S model, you know, you see oftentimes the chair being the CEO 
And, and one of the benefits, and there's a big debate about that, of course, but one of the benefits of splitting that role is that if a chair is doing their job properly, then they're actually moderating or facilitating a conversation as opposed to being the CEO that's trying to actually direct decisions in a particular yeah. uh, bias to, as to what they what outcome the CEO yeah. wants out of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's correct. I mean, in South Africa, there's a very strong focus from our listed entity point of view, but also, uh, you know, most private companies try to follow, um, you know, Basel 2 and 3 and on King 3, obviously on the financial side, but King 2 and 3 on the corporate governance side. And I think it's important to, for, for most boards to make sure that they, that they run those processes and the, and the role of the chair is is probably a lot focused on how do you run those different governance processes, especially also the the chair of the audit and risk committee. You know, so from a King Three point of view, it's important that they understand the relationships and uh, the auditing firms in South Africa. You know, they definitely wants to ensure that from an audit point of view, that's all covered. So you're absolutely right. I suppose in South Africa, we are very much more formalized in that sense. Yeah, and no, actually, in the book I wrote, um, the, the, I, I referenced King because I, th- I think if you know the, the governance universe, from what I've seen, is evolving at different rates in different parts of the world, and mm-hmm. and I think if I had to say that uh, there's any area of the world that's probably the most advanced, it's South Africa and King because there was Cadbury and and whatnot in the UK uh, that you know, stimulated some discussions in Canada, but, um, but King, I think, and, and I, I, what I wrote and, and be interested in your hopefully confirming because I put it in print now, uh, is that this is actually the, the whole governance subject in South Africa was really an outcome of, of, of apartheid that, that apartheid was as much as anything, a governance failure. And, and in order uh, my interpretation of Mandela's version, uh, vision rather, was to actually turn the page and move forward with a, a proper and and thoughtful governance structure, and and perhaps that's why King uh, is so prominent in governance in South Africa. Am I right or wrong? <laughs> Well, I would like to claim that that was before my time, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, it's it's certainly this. I suppose there is something that was taken from that, um, but I must say, generally, um, South Africa. Even when I started in the early 1990s, in terms of my working career, um, you know, governance processes were very much. Um, uh, you know, there was a, a big focus placed on compliance. I suppose, you know, during 2009 with the financial crisis, the, the governance processes did get, a, you know, a big additional focus, um, you know, in terms of just complying with all the dif- different regulations. Um, but I must say, I never really felt that the South African business environment was a, a loose environment in, in that sense when, you, when it comes to compliance. Um, where the motivation for that comes from, which you are referring to, is I'm not 100% sure. Um, and I think uh, I can't really comment on that. But I do think that, you know, that over the years in the business environment, it certainly becomes, it, it becomes more talked of. Now, being, you know, even by saying that, 
you know, you can think of one or two corporate failures in South Africa recently that the governance structures uh, or compliance process felt, you know, so so it's not it's not necessarily a bulletproof process, um, but certainly there is a focus on it, and certainly there's a bigger focus since those corporate failures um, that was you know that was very well written about, um, and that international companies you know that that people now are saying okay maybe we should think differently on one or two things. The the one concern I always have about compliance, Brian, is sometimes it does become a tick box event, you know, rather than a proper audit process, and I think it's uh, for me, compliance is always trying to find that balance between, you know, people really understanding the people, the business, so your internal audit team really understanding what they're auditing uh, versus just, you know, ticking the boxes from a king point of, uh, point of view. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's a very subtle point, but it's the spirit of the compliance that's important, yeah. not the actual outcome and the score, because, you know, there's, there's measurement systems in South Africa that, you know, uh, B triple E's, etc. That uh, and and the like that generate a number, and the number is not really what's important. It's what's underneath yeah. the number. It, it, just in that regard, you know, lately um, in a lot of North American, Western Europe, uh, etc. Governance. Uh, speaking of letters, E S and G are front and center. There's conferences, there's seminars, there's webinars, ad inf- et cetera, and lots of focus on that and, and the governance industry. Is that it, ESG, is that, how is that viewed in, in parts of Africa? Because a lot of ESG in North America, to me, is, is the last of the letters, is green. There's a huge desire yeah. to move off of carbon because of climate change. Is 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 green is prominent in 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 parts of Africa? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's um, look. I can't speak for all the African countries, uh, Brian, um, but certainly in, in in Southern Africa and certainly in South Africa, the ESG process and auditing ESG contributions are obviously uh, key. I mean, we see more and more financial institutions making that part of the uh, almost like credit scoring. Um, you know, so. Uh, and in a lot of the, um, you know, reporting to shareholders, especially um, listed shareholders, you know, it's it's a it's a big requirement. So definitely something that um, that's yeah getting a lot of uh, attention, um, you know, on different levels in the company. It is is it in your estimation? Are there other issues that sort of are being pushed to the sidelines, such as? Social stability, poverty, currency, liquidity, uh, education, because of a focus on things like climate. And it's, it, it, I think it's, I think the, the, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question debate because I do think that the younger generations are very much focused on, um, on, on the environment is very much focused on where our pro- uh, products are produced. We see that in a food production uh, area, you know, how uh, the traceability becomes important, that people want to understand, you know, um, that the farmer used the right processes and, and production processes. So so I think we, we're going into an environment where you look 20 years ago, um, you know, it was really about yield and profitability, you know, and, and um, over time, I think there is a general sense for how do we cater and look after our environment? How do we look after our, um, 
you know, after the world and and um, and the globe. And I think the importance for us is um, from a food production point of view and and uh, uh, food sustainability point of view is to actually follow that that trend um, to make sure that you know your consumer is getting more attentive to um, to that um, and uh, and the consumer wants to make sure that they look after the environment and I think that that becomes that's definitely a change it's a change in terms of certain things that you export it's a change in terms of your younger generations in South Africa so there's, there's definitely a focus on that. And I suppose, Brian. I mean, I could ask you the question: Is it is it exactly is it similar? In, do you see that change in Canada and in the states as well? Absolutely. I, you know, I think it's in in Canada because we are in you know one of the largest exporters of of uh, petroleum products in the world. Um, the the green element in particular has been um, a very disruptive. To places like Alberta, where the economy is is founded and not founded, but it, it's very prominent. I think yeah. the other issue that emerges, uh, you know, it, and it's it's it, in Canada, it's it's we're a bit of a microcosm of of the world in the sense that uh, we have very high immigration rates, which I think you can, you know, there would be people that say they're way too high, and there's others that would have a contrary point of view. Um, but, but the, the cultural mix in, and especially through COVID in dealing with, you know, having a cons sort of a, a society that coalesces is, uh, it can be problematic sometimes because people, uh, have more extreme views and, you know, we're taking in 10 times as many people, not per capita, uh, of immigrants, but, but then the United States. We take this year. I think the target's 400, 350, 400,000 people versus probably 40,000 40, sure. of uh, immigrants to the United States. And by the way, a lot of them are South Africans. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's something to be said for winter. And I know yeah. that your son plays ice hockey, as you call it. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, but they do like the um, they do like the hockey. <laughs> You know, so one of the things that, that I was thinking about before we got on, um, and and my experience is, uh, and you're you are probably the one of the best people I can think of to speak to, as a former or a current merchant banker or investment banker. To, to, what's the right time horizon for looking at investing in in Africa? Is do do the New York bankers have too much uh, expectation of I've got a three to time three year uh, window here and then I want a liquidity event uh, or three to five is is that is that flawed um, yeah I, I, I think so I think this we earlier spoke about misconceptions I think there is a misconception in the sense that margins in Africa should be much higher because it's probably less developed. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think there is an investment, um, you know, people looking from the outside into Africa always um, assume or expect that they can buy cheap assets. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, uh, Brian. So so looking at timing, um, I, I think, you know, like any other place in the world, the timing is when you feel you can contribute to, to a corporate and make it bigger, you know, and and, um, 
And I think if you can get a good transaction on a good um, assets, it's probably getting it's probably a much better transaction to do than getting a good deal on a on a bad asset, you know, or a cheap deal on a bad yeah. asset. So, so I think for me, it's really um, the timing for, for me in, 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 in Africa is there, there are a huge amount of very good companies in Africa. And I think the misconception is trying to do cheap deals and then walking away from good corporates. Um, uh, but, but yeah, to, to answer your question in terms of timing, I think there's no better time than now to invest. You know, that if you take a it depends, I suppose, Brian, if you're a private equity investor or if you're a long-term investor. I suppose from a private equity point of view, you almost, as you say, you know, you want to exit in three to five years. And I don't think Africa necessarily lends it to that um, in the sense of the corporates. You know, you if you if you invest in a corporate to turn that around or to change that in three years and to exit, by default, it depends on the size of the transaction. But I suppose by default, there might not be that big amount of companies that can invest. You know, some as I said earlier, you know, in some countries, the population is low and you need to make sure that the, your investment is correctly done and uh, that you plan your exit, you know, from, from day one. That makes much more sense for me. But... But it's probably your five to five to seven year exit plans are probably better, or even seven to ten years, you know. Um, and and I think those transactions are definitely there, and you can you can really create good value for shareholders or for investors in in, in those transactions. And and if you look at the ten year transaction, you're not necessarily so worried about political risk. And I suppose that's probably the biggest issue for overseas investors are political risk, you know, and how um, when they want to exit, what is the the foreign currency going to do and what is the exchange rate going to be. So so they need to take that into consideration. But there are big companies in, in most of the countries that, that may be a potential uh, buyer of the asset, you know, at the time that you want to exit. So the opportunities are there. Um, I think, as I say, good corporates, but don't have an assumption or an expectation that you should buy cheap. Because I, don't, I just don't think it's there. And, and as, as you're starting uh, and, and sovereign, is, does that present a challenge in the sense that attracting capital, there's a misalignment because some the, the, the people that are investing really aren't as excited about things that are seven to 10 years? So... Um, so my my focus in sovereign um, is very much on um, you know making a change in, in the sustainability of food certainty in the, in the continent long term. So, and by default, you your I suppose your focus of potential investors or co-investors or fund managers are different in that space than in private equity um, because it's you you tend to speak to more, more to impact investors I suppose than to your normal private equity investor. Um, and and that's a, a sometimes a different discussion, um, Brian. And and I don't necessarily see a in 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 that area. I don't necessarily see a problem with potential investors because there is, um, I think there's a lot of capital allocated into Africa or for Africa in terms of food security and food sustainability. So so that is positive. Um, I do know that in in terms of the South African environment capital availability for um, equity investments is definitely there. It's actually, it's actually, you know, talking to a fund manager yesterday, they, they in a sense, see more liquidity now than they have uh, some time back. So I, I think it is a, it's an opportunity for investors and for fund managers at the moment. 
Yeah, that's not what I would have thought, actually, because there's there's so much volatility in the world, and especially with COVID and and the and the the topography of vaccines, where some countries have vaccines and others uh, don't, and and even within the ones that do, that there's people that are just shrugging and 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 taking a pass on it. Um, so it's that's that's a a great and optimistic thing to observe that there's still uh, confidence to make investments. You know, one of the things that when I reflect back on, on my experience uh, working with you is to some degree that it, I, I think it invades the boardroom, uh, the culture of, of expectation within a certain time frame. And if there's a misalignment, if some, if some of the people in the boardroom are, are looking at it, that they want some return in three to five years, and but others are looking at seven to ten. Uh, it it can cause some uh, tectonic, you know, plate shifts or, or tensions within within the decision making process within at the board level. It's true. I mean, but you being chair of many boards before, <laughs> um, <laughs> how have you handled the? misalignment between investors and shareholders and management. I mean, um, I imagine you had that uh, throughout your life a couple of times. Well, I'll tell you one outcome or one way of dealing with it is I get less sleep because sometimes <laughs> you, you can't square that circle. Um, yeah. my, my, it sounds very trite and simplistic, but I, I suppose it connects back to what you were talking about with relationships is is that my my uh, takeaway is is there's there's no substitute for spending time with somebody and actually understanding what their interests are but what what they would like to achieve and um yeah. and, and 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 appreciating being empathetic yeah. and and trying to incorporate what they what what they desire and aspire to and incorporate yeah. that into what every there's multiple perspectives in in a boardroom if you've got seven or ten or 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 in the case of of uh, some organizations 15 people or 20 uh, that are all have a point of view i think brian the you know we both probably can agree that sometimes you know an investor and uh, and uh, you know when they when they assess an investment they don't necessarily spend enough time with the management team to understand what the the long-term strategy is of the management team and and i think that that um first of all just the word we we spoke earlier about um, different cultures in the boardroom and and in teams but just the word long term has different meanings to different cultures you know so so we can all agree up front that we're in for the long term, but in, in your mind that may be five years, in my mind that may be twenty years, and and I think that is part of the process that, uh, from an investment point of view, one needs to probably spend more time on is a bit of a brainstorm with management and potential new shareholders to say, okay, what what do we mean, uh, mean uh, uh, you know, in terms of long term or investments or growth, and how do you plan for that? Um, and and, uh, and I think that's something that one needs to look at probably more actively uh, when assessing investments. Yep. Um, so uh, I was thinking of of a way of closing off because it's been a great conversation and I really enjoyed it. But I, I was thinking, okay, you know, Chris has got a new venture. 
Um, so let's to build off that last point, the longer term, what, what's, what's the legacy of sovereign in the longer term, whatever the longer term is, whether it's seven years or 10 or 20, what's, what's the legacy of what you're doing now? Um, ideally, um, you know, you spoke about population growth, about a billion people is expected to, to be added to the African continent by 2050. Um, you know, for me is to create a, a vehicle or an investment house that owns assets um, that can play a big role in supporting food certainty for those people on, on the African continent. And uh, for that to be generational, you know, and when you talk about generational investments, in my mind, you talk about 40, 50, 70 years, not necessarily 10 or 15. So, so that's my ideal scenario. And hopefully, you know, I'm blessed, uh, uh, you know, from the law to achieve that. Fantastic. Um, Chris, thanks very much for the conversation. I really appreciated it. And um, um, good luck and, and God bless. Thanks. I appreciate it, Brian. All the best to you as well. Thank you. Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This is Unboard.